You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. So so, so my first uh, consideration for this afternoon is, is on the question of motherhood. And... Being a mother is an extremely difficult, it's a challenging, it can be a very tiring calling, but its rewards are really in proportion to the work that we put in. And God has given us guidance and encouragement in, in regard to that. Unfortunately, in the world today, uh, motherhood is under challenge, isn't it? That, you know, motherhood is considered to be bondage, uh, children considered to be a, a burden, um, and regrettably, all of those I guess, attitudes sometimes infiltrate our thinking as brethren and sisters. So in the short session we've got, I just want to talk a little bit about about motherhood and maybe to encourage some mothers here amongst us this afternoon. Excuse me. So so, so we've seen, haven't we, from Titus chapter 2, which we looked at uh, previously. Sorry. That... uh, Really, mothers are, are encouraged to, to love their family, to love their husbands, to love their children. And, and you wonder why that is there. And, and often when, uh, when a mother is, uh, I guess, in the middle of, uh, of trauma where the washing and ironing is piling up and, and, and the, uh, the children are screaming and uh, not doing what you're saying, it's, it just becomes something too hard. And that's why uh, there is this uh, injunction for the elderly sisters to, to lend a hand. And the elderly sisters excuse me, can do so by uh, educating the mothers to love their husbands, love their children. It's, uh, it seems unnatural, isn't it, that, 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 that not may be the same, but, but when, when things are difficult, when, when pressure's on, it, it really is an important thing to, to maintain that love and cherishing in that environment. And the record in Titus goes on to say that they should be keepers at home. She is a home builder. She, she takes family responsibilities very seriously. And, and although sometimes it seems very hard and, uh, and very tiring, sometimes the, the husband may not be quite as understanding as he should. Uh, nevertheless, uh, she, she really is a home builder. She needs to do that and, and be involved in that and be encouraged to take that role on. Uh, she sets the tone. She organises the children. She, she makes sure that the Sunday school homework's done and the, the projects are done. And uh, r- rather than seeing it as a, as, as a sort of a, a boring grind, sh- she elevates that work as unto the Lord, which, of course, is the principle by which we all work. Godly mothers, too, have a very important part in the development spiritually of their children. Yeah, we have there a quotation from Proverbs. Hear my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. And the combination of mother and father together is a powerful tool. Deuteronomy talks about the constant need to talk about the things of God, the scriptures of truth, day and night. And the instruction of the children is, is an essential part particularly in those early years where children are developing and, and uh, are dependent upon their mother for many things. And, and that's why the, the daily reading at the children's level, at appropriate level, young children, 
growing children, teenagers all have appropriate levels of understanding and the importance of the, the mother, along with the father, but particularly the mother in the early stages of life, is essential. And that's why we have the quotation there from Timothy, where, where Timothy's mother and grandmother played a significant role in his spiritual education. And grandmothers, really, also, as part of this equation, form an essential part of that, that family bond. Uh, not all mothers or grandmothers are necessarily in the truth, but but if you are, it's a critical part of encouraging and educating your children. You can have so much influence for good in relation to those parts of your children and grandchildren's education. Uh, this is a, a concept that the world challenges the need to discipline our children, and, and mothers should be willing to discipline their children when the need arises. That discipline may take all sorts of different forms. Proverbs 29.15 says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. And mothers keenly feel that, don't they, if they find that they've neglected that discipline and, and the child grows up very willingly uh, going their own way and, and not doing what they're told. It does bring embarrassment and shame to the mother. So while you have opportunity, sisters, uh, don't be reluctant to use discipline when that discipline is needed. We're probably all aware of Proverbs chapter 31, which I'd like you to turn to uh, for a, a consideration of a few verses. That There's an energy about this woman here. Uh, in fact, the word virtuous, as we have there on the screen, literally means strength. She, she's a strong woman. It's it's translated activity, ability, valor, wealth, efficiency, endurance, capability. All of those qualities are, are part of the mother's and the woman's involvement with her husband, with her family, and with her ecclesia. I just want to pick a, a few of the exhortations from this chapter in relation to motherhood. Uh, in verse 15, she riseth also while it's yet night, giveth meat to her household and a portion to her maidens. So, so one of her key responsibilities, and, and she's keen because she gets up early in the morning to do that, is to keep the family nourished. And it's not just her household, it's also her maidens. Uh, here is a, a, a woman of substance. She, she has servants. And she doesn't neglect that. On a spiritual level, of course, rising early and feeding the household spiritually is a significant portion of the virtuous woman as a mother. She's looking after the household in every way. In verse 17, we learn that she girdeth her strength, her loins with strength and strengtheneth her arms. So she is strong physically, she's strong emotionally, she's strong spiritually. And uh, sometimes when motherhood becomes very difficult, very strained, uh, that verse might seem like a, uh, a very <laughs> long ideal to strive for. But, but I'm pleasantly surprised at, at the strength we see in mothers, that, uh, that they bear a great deal of, of the household work with the children. And they rise to the occasion. And it's a wonderful thing to see a mother who is emotionally and spiritually strong, even though the way is difficult. Uh, in verse 20, she stretcheth out her hands to the poor, yea, she reacheth forth her hands to the needy. 
So her, her selflessness, which is which is evident to those in the house, is also a selflessness outside the home. She has she has a, a very broad care, not just for those of her immediate family, but also of the household of God. Her thoughts are very expansive to others. And in verse 27, she looketh well to the ways of the household and eateth not the bread of idleness. So she is full of energy. She, she's industrious. There are, there are goals to meet. There are ideals to meet. And she meets those with the full energy of her life. So that's, that's an ideal. It's an ideal which, which all mothers should strive for, even when the going gets tough. I just want to leave this, this session with just a, a consideration of, of, I think, one of, one of the most remarkable mothers mentioned in Scripture, and that's the mother of our Lord. And for mothers out there to, to take heart from her, her wonderful example, she, she really is quite a remarkable woman. When we first meet her, she would have probably been maybe in her late teens. We're not quite sure exactly how old she was, maybe early 20s. We don't know precisely. But one thing we do know is, is that when the archangel Gabriel comes to her, she is courageous. I mean, you look at other people in scripture who are faced with presence of angels and their reaction is one of fear. But, but, but not, not this sister. She, she is quite remarkable in, in, that, in, that, in that courage that she has. And in that incident, she demonstrates an unshakable faith. Blessed is she that believed was, was the comment of Elizabeth. And standing up in the presence of an angel with a good conscience, not being fearful of the, of the messenger, and receiving that message with absolute faith is a testimony to the greatness of the mother of our Lord. Unswerving faith is a wonderful characteristic for, for mothers to have. She sings a song of faith. And when you look at that particular song, we find there that there's a contrast between her song and that of Elizabeth. Elizabeth spoke under inspiration of the spirit that's not recorded of Mary's song. When you put together the Psalms and the prophets that she is quoting spontaneously from her own understanding, she has a tremendous respect and understanding of the scriptures of truth. She reads them, she reflects them, and remember they didn't have concordances in those days, and more significantly, she remembers the scripture, and she's able to put them together in this glorious and wonderful sense of thanksgiving. And she is a woman of abounding thankfulness. Uh, she, she is grateful that, that God has chosen her to be a mother in Israel. And I think Mothers, sisters, that's a wonderful, reassuring thought that God has called you to a very, very important task in the ecclesia of God, the Israel of God, as a mother in Israel. And Mary was fully appreciative of that. We find also that Mary is a sister, a mother who is constantly pondering and meditating on God's words. Her son says something and she reflects upon that. And sometimes the providence of God seems to move in a direction that she's not expecting or even challenges her understanding. But she is reflective of these things. She casts these things in her mind. Uh, and that's really a remarkable thing about this particular mother in Israel. 
she reflects upon the word of God, and, and even if things aren't going the way she expects, nevertheless, she is deeply thoughtful and reflective and prayerful in relation to those things. Well, you know, you think the hospital experience was was bad news when, when you had your first child. Well, just think about Mary. She gave birth to God's son in a shed. Uh, there were no uh, ICU units. There were no hospital staff to look after you. There was no comfort of a, of a hospital bed. Um, visitors were few and far between. Uh, look at that experience. And... In all of that, brothers and sisters, the humility of, of, of that experience is really a mark of her humility through all her life. And imagine being charged with the enormous responsibility of raising God's son. Imagine that, to raise our Lord Jesus Christ in a healthy, godly way. That God had entrusted you with his son. And in a sense, because children are a heritage of God, uh, that charge is also to us, isn't it, as well, to, to bring up our children in a godly environment. And we know that she succeeded because you only have to look at the, the, uh, the, the other children that she bore. They were full of the scriptures. James, particularly, when you look at his epistle, is full of, full of the ideas, the Proverbs. Uh, so clearly the, the scriptures had a significant part to play in that family. And uh, the pressure on Mary to make sure that she cared for this son in, in, in a healthy and godly way would have been enormous, but she was successful at that. Think of the trials, too, that came upon her. You know, she, she learned things about her son that would have confused her. She would have felt the antagonism that her son was receiving at the hand of the Jewish rulers. The children of the household, in fact, were disbelieving of our Lord's claim. Wasn't he just a carpenter? And yet through all of that, despite the sleepless nights, despite the anxiety that she felt, nevertheless she would have put her trust fully in God, that, that in the end, brethren and sisters, all would be right. And then, and then to think about the great pain of the crucifixion, she was there at the foot of the cross. She, she saw every part of that agony and suffering. You know, the, the gasping breast to even just take a breath of her son. She saw that. She saw the blood. She saw the agony. And uh, as she was informed before, it was like a sword piercing her, her heart. Uh, and we can sometimes, as mothers, feel like that at times, where, where, where things are so desperately wrong, where, where we are in agony over things that we don't seem to be able to control. And we can take heart and sisters of the of the faithfulness and the and the confidence of this woman. And we can also imagine the joy, the, the amazing joy that, that, that when her son was raised from the dead and she fully grasped the purpose of God, the grand scheme of God in all things, that she would have been alive again with, with joy and rejoicing. And uh, we enter into her heart at that particular time because, because motherhood is a time of rejoicing and sorrow. It's a mingling of tears, of laughter and of tears of sorrow. And Mary experienced all of that. And we can take heart, mothers, that in the end, in the end, she was in that upper room with the faithful. She was there, fully understanding. And that's where, in the end, mothers need to be, in that upper room, in, in the contemplation 
of the things that God has done in her life, the life of the family, and in respect to the salvation that God has offered her to be in the end, in the upper room with the faithful. And now we're going to look at sisters. On the screen here from Philippians 4 and verse 18, it's this beautiful phrase, sacrifice acceptable while pleasing to God. I think, you know, there's nothing we could say more powerful uh, than a phrase like that when we think about our service to God. And when we think about our service to God, we Think about it in our various roles. We express our faith through roles. And in so doing, we express sacrifices to God. Wouldn't it be amazing if this is what the Lord Jesus Christ could say when we're standing before him at at the judgment, that we were a sacrifice acceptable while pleasing to God. So that's what we must do as brothers That's what we must do as sisters. We must be a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. So we're looking at sisters now for a few minutes together. And we're going to draw lessons from one sister in particular. I just love this sister. I think she's very much inspiring. And um, I I hope you'll find... That's be the case as well. So turn with me to Acts 16. Acts 16. The Apostle Paul was in Troas, and he receives a vision in Acts 16 and verse 9. It says, there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. Paul was being redirected by the guidance of God to go to Macedonia because there was a need there. Someone was asking for help. You know, the spirit of helping would grow and it would grow and it would grow. And it would spread and it would pervade the entire ecclesia that would be formed in Philippi. And it would also come to define whose sister Lydia was. And so Paul makes his way to Philippi in Macedonia, and we read in verse 13, on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. You know, Paul would normally make his way to the synagogue, but there doesn't seem to be a synagogue here in Philippi. So he goes to a place of prayer. And there were women gathered there, several of them. And no doubt they were zealous over the scriptures. They believed in God, but they needed help with their understanding. And one of them in particular stood out from the rest. One of them in particular, God wanted to name and have recorded in his scripture. And it was Lydia. Just look at the next phrase. It's really going to tell you a lot about who the sister was. 
Verse 14, there was a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God. She heard us. Her heart was opened by the Lord, and she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Think about the emphasis that is in that verse. She worshiped God. This was a sister that feared God, that intensely believed in his existence, that understood the true God, was the God of Israel. But she needed understanding, and so it says she heard us. Now, what's she hearing? What did Paul always speak about when he went from synagogue to synagogue, from city to city? He spoke that gospel message, the things of Christ and the things of the kingdom. And it says that she heard it. She heard the gospel message. She listened carefully. She gave audience, as that word heard us means. And as a result of hearing, there was a change. The message touched her heart. And so the next phrase is, whose heart the Lord opened. That phrase opened is only occurs seven other times. Most of them are actually in Luke 24, the two on the road to Emmaus. And it says they constrained the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says, they say to Christ, abide with us here. Why? They wanted to hear him expound about himself. And it talks about how he, he talked about the law and the prophets concerning himself. And when Jesus stayed with them and, and had a meal with them and had broke bread with them, he also taught them. And it says their eyes were opened. It says their hearts burned while he opened the scriptures. It's the same word. And you see, your heart and your mind cannot be opened unless the scriptures are first opened. They go hand in hand. And that's exactly what was happening here in Acts 16. The Apostle Paul was opening the scriptures, we could say. And so her heart was opened. It says she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. She was fully aware. She had drawn close to something, as the word means. She drew close to the gospel message. She, she wanted to know all of the details. And her heart was opened. And I think when we just consider those four phrases alone, in this wonderful sister, we get a lesson. And the lesson is this, that sisters should be intimately immersed in the scriptures. They should love the word. Come to know the word, to cherish the word, and to discuss the word. Sometimes maybe we don't put enough emphasis on this. And I think it's also true that it can be more difficult for sisters because they don't have the responsibility to, to give a lecture or a Bible class. So maybe it's harder to be motivated. But the lesson from Lydia is that sisters too are to be immersed in the word. Well, we keep reading in verse 15, she was baptized and her household and she besought us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. Interestingly, those two words, 
the same words used with the two on the road to Emmaus. But brothers and sisters, who besought who? It wasn't Lydia's husband or son or brother or uncle. It was sister Lydia. She besought Paul. In fact, it says she constrained us. You know, that word constrained is the word parabizomai. It means to employ force contrary to nature. Lydia was working hard at having the Apostle Paul and his companions into her house. She was determined. She insisted. She was resolute. She saw the need and there was no stopping her. Her generosity just exuded from her. She wanted them to abide in her house. And Paul provided for them, and she wanted to provide in return. You know, some people need that. They need that strong encouragement. They need you to constrain them before they'll actually receive hospitality. And this brings us to lesson two. Sisters should triumphantly demonstrate hospitality in their own homes. They should persistently persuade those in the ecclesia and other brothers and sisters with whom there is opportunity to partake in that hospitality. And it's worth right now, brothers and sisters, to think about who's the last person that we constrained to have over, that we opened our house to, who's the next person that we're opening our house to. Sisters have a large part in this particular role in the ecclesia and to provide hospitality and generosity. And it can't be half-hearted. Sometimes you'll have to constrain people contrary to nature. But I think the greatest of the lessons lies in the word besought. Verse 15, when she was baptized her household and her household, she besought us. You know what that word is? It's the Greek word perikaleo, to call to one side. It's where we get our word exhortation from. It's somewhat comical, isn't it, where we're trying to defend the traditional roles. And here Lydia is giving an exhortation to the Apostle Paul. But the word's much more elastic than we tend to use it. We tend to use it on a Sunday morning. The exhortation is the 30 minutes that a brother gives. But it's not true. The word means to call to one side. And that can happen anytime, anywhere. Lydia besought Paul. And what she was doing was saying, Paul, receive the hospitality that I want to give you. She was calling him to her side. Align your thoughts with mine, she says. That's what it means to be to besought the Apostle Paul. So all of us have the responsibility to exhort one another in that particular way, to help each other get to the kingdom. And sometimes that will mean We'll have to say no to that which is wrong and yes to that which is right. That will mean helping each other with various services. In this case for Lydia, 
It meant opening up her home, but she had to call someone to her side. The spirit that she had of hospitality, the spirit that she had in the truth, though, was contagious. Because the rest of chapter 16 is a story of Paul and Silas who are imprisoned. They're singing songs. And then there's the conversion of the jailer in his household. And the, the sergeants are, are trying to get Paul and Silas out of the city once they, they escaped or, or left prison. And have a look at verse 40. Because when they do leave prison, where do they go? They went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. So Paul and Silas came to the house of Lydia because this place was a place that was known for hospitality. Their house was, was so warm and, and welcoming that they could return there. But do you know what they did when they arrived? It says they comforted them. Guess what that word is? Parakaleo. Guess who's doing the exhorting now? The Apostle Paul. What goes around comes around, you could say. But this spirit of generosity that Lydia had, this spirit of, of calling a brother or sister to her side was one that the Apostle Paul and Silas clearly had, but it also didn't stop there. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, we're going to read verse 15, but the Apostle Paul is under house arrest in Rome. He's near the end of his life, and he's writing now a letter to the Philippian Ecclesia, which, by the way, was started in Acts chapter 16 as a result of Lydia and her household's conversion. And now there's an Ecclesia, and the Apostle's writing to the Ecclesia, and this is what he says, now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, I left. No ecclesia communicated or fellowshiped, as the word means with me, as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. And there is the spirit of, of generosity, of hospitality. For it says, verse 16, even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity. The Philippian Ecclesia provided for the needs of the Apostle Paul. Not once, but twice. And actually, we can read in Corinth that the Philippian Ecclesia provided for him when he was in Corinth as well. Because the spirit of Sister Lydia was contagious. And it spread throughout the meeting. And impacted the entire meeting so much so that they were known for the same spirit that she had. And this Ecclesia would give one more time. Verse 18 says, But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things that were sent from you. It, it would appear that the apostle had received things now, even in Rome. 
But this was more than a gift, brothers and sisters. This was more than simple generosity. Look at what the Apostle Paul says. This is an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. This was a living sacrifice. This was taking up the cross and following the Lord Jesus. This was God manifestation, all because this ecclesia was filled with members that fulfilled their roles. And this is what we all strive for when we want to fulfill our own roles. We want to be well-pleasing to God and be an acceptable sacrifice. And so our final lesson is that sisters should have a spirit of generosity by giving to those in need and to the many different endeavors in the truth. It's not just opening up your homes. There are so many ways, so many different projects in the truth, so many different efforts that the spirit of generosity is needed. You know, sometimes it feels, perhaps, sisters, that, well, how can I have a big impact? It's the brother that stands up in front of everybody. He speaks to the whole congregation at once. He impacts everyone. But look at Lydia. Her spirit of generosity and hospitality permeated the entire ecclesia so that not just Lydia, but the whole Philippian ecclesia was known for this wonderful attribute of giving and serving and all because this sister was willing to fulfill her role. It's interesting that when the prophet Malachi described a wife, he described her in three unique terms. She is the wife of thy youth, he said. She is thy companion. And she's also the wife of thy covenant. And all of those three expressions have a great weight behind them. But she is in every respect the wife of thy covenant. Husband and wife made vows to each other before God and before witnesses that they would remain faithful to that relationship. And really, it is a significant part of being a wife. The virtuous wife, we know from Proverbs chapter 31, verse 13, is a God-fearing woman. She not only believes in God, but she trusts in God and she's aware of God's power through the word of God and through providence in her life. She shall be praised, says Proverbs 31. She is a wise house builder. And the Proverbs talk about a foolish woman who pulls down her house, who disparages the work. But the wise wife is one who builds and encourages and sustains and edifies. Her focus is on the profit of the household spiritually. 
in Proverbs chapter 31 and verse 26, we won't turn to it, but the verse is a really wonderful verse because the record says that out of her mouth comes wisdom and also the law of kindness. And it's almost like a paradox, isn't it? It's, it's a law. She, she sets the law down, if you like, but it's a law of kindness. And that kindness mingled with wisdom is, a, is an exceedingly powerful force in that home. And it also can be in the family itself. Uh, we learned from Ephesians 5 and Titus 2 previously that she honors and loves her husband and respect is a critical part of that relationship. And Peter talks about uh, the godly women of old, the Sarahs of this world. They are chaste, they are meek, and they are godly. And, and those qualities are, are essential, aren't they, in, in the virtuous wife. This session is more practical, and I, I, I want to talk just very briefly before I introduce uh, another astounding scriptural sister. It's just to give an example of, of some practical advice for wives and also for husbands as well in, in this arrangement. You know, here are just 10 brief marriage ideals. Uh, the, the first is loyalty, trustworthiness, and love, you know, and these are absolutely critical and integral to fulfill any relationship in any marriage. You and your spouse need to trust each other implicitly. Uh, loyalty is the, the sense of devotion that you have to each other. And of course, love is absolutely critical, isn't it? We can't afford to fall out of love. Communication issues and unrealistic expectations, feeling of neglect and loneliness, these are all the main reasons out there in the world why marriages fail, but it can't be so with us. And we have to make sure that that, that loyalty and, and respect and love is part of our relationship with our spouse. You know, you, you, you look at any kind of... Uh, marriage counsel guide me guidance material and you'll find that communication is essential listening and supporting each other is absolutely critical isn't it and, and it's actively listening it's it's focusing your attention on what's being said it's particularly true for males i suppose but but really uh, it doesn't matter how small or how, how mundane the conversation is to, to listen to each other and to support each other is critical and, and part of the relationship is also to express gratitude, to, to remember to say thank you for the little things that we often take granted for granted. Um, our wife is busy in many areas and husband also busy in many areas. Well, let's be appreciative of that to each other. Let's, let's express that gratitude, which, which not only increases positive feelings that we have about each other, but, but it cements the relationship together. Really critical to be kind to each other. You know, to express compassion, to understand, to to listen, to say, to stay strong. Uh, very, very important. You know, once you start criticizing each other needlessly and carrying on and berating each other, then all of that kindness disappears, and the barriers are up, and the uh, and the stone walling and the silence intrudes into the marriage. But but with kindness, consistent kindness, it, it binds the relationship together. And, and responding to our, our spouse's needs. The husband to dwell with knowledge, says Peter. And the wife to also understand the husband's needs 
as well and to, to, to give attention to those and giving attention to each other is is really critical isn't it those little words i'm sorry go a long way in, in any relationship and the capacity to be humble enough to realize that we're not perfect and we do make mistakes is is critical isn't it to be open with our spouse very very important to recognize that we do make mistakes and to apologize for them and and in any any marriage there's going to be disagreement you know happens all the time but it but it's it's the way in which we handle that that is absolutely critical um you know you don't have to yell to be heard and criticism and defensiveness and, and contempt these destroy marriages they destroy relationships uh in the end we, we can't afford to overreact and it's difficult isn't it when when, when temperatures rising and uh we're getting a little bit uh, argumentative but but we, we really have to respect each other and, and realize that we're aiming for the same thing in this relationship and of course the advice by the apostle paul don't let the sun go down upon your wrath making up is a critical part of that relationship as well and sharing purposeful activities together you know creating times together in which we are focused upon the person in front of us the exclusion of all other distractions you know this this builds the connections and the closeness and it's particularly true when when we have a shared meaning in the truth where we're working together in the things of god absolutely critical that we appreciate the the need for this shared meaning in the truth this becomes the focus of our lives whether it's our families and our children or or the meeting or whatever it may be that's the priority surely to serve god with all our heart and soul and mind and strength now just to illustrate some of these wonderful principles we're going to have a look at uh, a remarkable sister and her name is priscilla she was called Paul's helper in Christ Jesus. I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 18, if you would. We were introduced to this woman and, and her husband in, in a most wonderful way. Here we have it in Acts chapter 18, and in verse 1, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. Now, Luke's very understated description of this travelogue needs to be balanced by what we learn about Paul in the epistles. And we're told in the epistle of the Corinthians that when Paul arrived in Corinth, he was depressed, he was downcast, he was lonely, didn't know a soul in Corinth, his friends were elsewhere in the Macedonian Peninsula, and he was there with great fear. Here he does arrive in Corinth at this time and in verse 2 he found a certain Jew named Aquila born in Pontus lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and he came unto them and because he was of the same craft he abode with them and wrought for by their occupation they were tent makers now I just want you to think about the providence of this husband and wife arrangement and particularly the sister as well Priscilla now we're told that Aquila whose name is an eagle comes from Pontus and if you look at the map of the 
Roman Empire, you find that Pontus is on the shores of the Black Sea. So, so we're talking about an individual who was on the extremities of the Roman Empire. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is organizing all the providential activity after his resurrection, sees this individual at the extremities of the empire and has a purpose with him. So he brings him all the way to Rome. And it's most likely there that he found his wife, Priscilla. Now, now you think about this. He decides he's going to go into a trade. And of all the trades that Providence pushes them into, it's tent making, which is the identical craft that the Apostle Paul takes up, probably in parallel, in Tarsus. And what's this man doing from the extremities of the empire, which would, would have been very nice, easy life, ending up in the commercial activity of Rome? And there, most likely, he found his wife, Priscilla. And, and even in that relationship, in the providence of God, they don't know the truth. They're outside the truth. God is still making sure that the marriage relationship here, before they come into the truth, is of significant and importance to this couple. Well, the record says that they're pushed out of Rome and they end up in Corinth. Now, you think, sisters, here's... Uh, found your husband, you've you found a, a commercial interest together, uh, you're working together in this very significant trade, designing and making tents, which is a very hands-on kind of experience and, and trade. And you set up your business, everything's going swimmingly well, and then all of a sudden, through this wave of anti-Semitism, you're pushed out of Rome. Where are you going to go? Well, in the providence of God, they were directed to Corinth. And notice in verse 2, Paul found them. And that word found is a significant biblical word. They were lost. And now they were found. And here's the Apostle Paul. He's, he's arrived in Corinth. He, he has a tray, so he, he has to look around for employment. He's, he's got to support himself. But no accommodation either. And there would have been several tent makers in Corinth, but God guides him to this particular family. From Corinth, we learn from Acts chapter 18 that they end up following Paul to Ephesus. But, but before they get to Ephesus, I want you to read very carefully Acts chapter 18 and verse 3. Because he was of the same craft, he abode with them. Now, that, that really is quite remarkable because it's actually telling us that not only did Aquila and Priscilla offer Paul a job, they offered him accommodation. And we know from Acts chapter 18 that Paul stayed with this couple for 18 months. My brother Josh talk, talked about the hospitality of Lydia, which is wonderful indeed. But here's a sister who's prepared to have a brother in the house for 18 months. And the record says in verse 3, he abode with them and wrought. He, he, he worked. He was a worker. And we know that he would have explained to Aquila and Priscilla his work ethic, that, that he was there to support himself. He would not take money of those people he preached to. He was a man of integrity. And that would have deeply impressed the, this couple. They were tent makers, and that was their occupation. And Paul going to the synagogue would have arrested their attention. And finally, they came into the truth in the providence of God. 
So, so, so this sister who's lost the security of self-employment in Rome finds the truth in Corinth, in the providence of God, her husband with her. Now, they occur together six times in the record, and three times it's Aquila and Priscilla, and three times it's Priscilla and Aquila. This sister is a very active member in the relationship with this family, with her husband. We find that they follow Paul to Ephesus. And in Ephesus, they find this man called Apollos. I want you to come across to verse 24. Paul is absent. Paul is in Asia Minor at the time. And verse 24, a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. The way of the Lord, that, that's a quotation from Isaiah 40. That, that was the quotation, the foundation quotation that John the Baptist used in his preaching. And Apollos used that same foundation in Ephesus. He was dynamic. He was powerful in the scriptures. He was energetic. He was intelligent in the word of God. And in verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expanded unto him the way of God more perfectly. Now, they're both in the audience, Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila is not a speaker, and Priscilla certainly not on the platform. And they're, they're in the audience listening to this man mighty in the scriptures. Now, what do they do? The record says they took him unto them. More modern translations say they took him home. Now, you imagine this, this mighty man, eloquent in the scriptures, dynamic, powerful, is brought home by Aquila and Priscilla. And the record says, whom when he was come, they helped them much, which had believed, sorry, verse 26, they expanded unto him the way of God more perfectly. They took him unto them. He is involved in that instruction in the home. And we can imagine husband and wife expounding the scriptures to a man who was conversant with his Bible, a powerful individual. And this husband and wife team with Priscilla also contributing to that, contributing to his powerful understanding. She's able to give him further instruction along with her husband. She doesn't do anything to undermine her husband's headship or authority, but she's there in the discussion and in that arrangement. Now, the point is this, brothers and sisters, that, that God uses ordinary folk in the eyes of the world to achieve great things. You know, one would have thought that it would have been a mighty man like Paul, eloquent in the scriptures, who could expound the scriptures more perfectly to this man, Apollos. But it wasn't. God chose this family. And the woman was involved in that, in that particular discussion. The promise of God was astounding in what's happening through the region. They ended up actually back in Rome. So, so, so they've traveled really right across the empire. And uh, the uncertainty of starting a new business, the, the, the uncertainty of going back into places like Rome where anti-Semitism was strong would have been very telling on Priscilla. But she, through it all, but the sisters, managed to put her trust in God and to come through those. She was part of expounding the way of God more perfectly. Her understanding was exemplary, and she'd only been in the truth less than 18 months. But I'd like you to come to Romans 16, because in Romans 16, we have 
this wonderful description of this couple of which Priscilla is a great part. So let's come to Romans chapter 16. So Paul says in verse 3, greet Priscilla and Aquila. So, so here's an incident where her name comes first. He calls them my helpers in Christ Jesus. And the Greek word is co-worker. You know, there's, there's companionship. There's not competition in the truth. There's companionship. And Paul placed the labors of this couple with Priscilla's name first as being a co-worker. And that's what united Aquila and Priscilla together. And she's at the forefront of that work. Now look at what happened in verse 4. Who have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not I only give thanks, but also all the ecclesia of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the ecclesia that is in their house. Now, when you lay down your neck, you lay down your life for somebody else. And in fact, it's a, a very graphic term of putting your head on the executioner's block. Now, we're not told the precise example, but we are told that they had exposed themselves to, to some hazardous dangers on behalf of Paul. And Priscilla is named first. Now, now no details are given of this brave incident. Uh, typical, I think, of the humility that surrounded this couple. But both of them did it, and Priscilla is named first in that. And, and, and the response of the ecclesial world was astounding. All the ecclesia, the Gentiles, were aware of that. And they gave thanks to God for the example of Priscilla leading that particular act of bravery. And once more, there is the hospitality in the house. They opened their house to an ecclesial meeting. A final reference to Aquila and Priscilla, particularly Priscilla, is found in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And, and, and this really rounds off the greatness of this particular sister. 2 Timothy is Paul's last word, word to the ecclesial world. Very sad epistle, asking, appealing for Timothy to come to see him before he faces the executioner's block. When we come to chapter four, Paul says to his audience, all Asia has forsaken me. All Asia has forsaken me. Had forsaken the truth, they had forsaken their support for Paul. A, a tragic blow at the end of your life. In verse 10, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, even betrayed by some of his closest friends. But then we come to verse 19, where at the end of the epistle, he, of all people, he asked Timothy to salute. It's Prisca, which is another name for Priscilla, and Aquila. Priscilla's mentioned first in this. All Asia may have forsaken Paul, but not Priscilla, nor her husband Aquila. They last is the very end, and, and that's a testimony not only to their bravery and their courage and their humility, but also to their steadfastness in the things of God. And that's what makes a really good wife.
You know, last, last time we talked about how fulfilling our roles and our services related to our roles is like a sacrifice acceptable to God. But we also want to fulfill, fulfill our role for another reason and speak the truth about our roles for another reason. And it's because we want to confess or acknowledge the teaching of Christ and God's plan. And in so doing, we want Christ as judge when he returns to confess us before his father. We want Christ to confess that we fulfilled our responsibilities as husbands and wives, as brothers and sisters, as mothers and fathers, faithfully and truthfully and biblically. And yet we're dramatically affected by the world around us, aren't we? And sometimes we don't even know it. Things just are the way that they are. That's all we know. That's all we've ever known. Sometimes we forget that things could have been different or were once different. Let me just prove this to you. Put this picture up on a screen. What do you think of? In most people today, when they drive by this, this is a bridge uh, near the Don Valley Parkway in Toronto. When they drive by it, they think of pride and support for pride. That's what people think. That's their frame of reference. This was actually painted. It's been painted again since then, but it was originally painted in 1971, many years before the rainbow was attributed to anything about pride. Somebody painted it because, well, as a, they were a troubled teenager. They had lost a close friend. They painted it saying it symbolized, well, a smile from heaven. I don't know exactly what they were thinking, but clearly a reference to God or, or something spiritual. And yet that's not what people think of because that's not in their frame of reference. They've just changed. And yet it's inaccurate. What about you, brothers and sisters? What did you think of? Probably conflicted would be my guess. You see, you can't unthink certain things. You can't unsee certain things. And once they're in your mind, they're in your mind. This up, it's a symbol of those at common law or couples living together before marriage. That's completely changed. It used to be a lot different. This one, the expectation and the variety of food. If we grow up in a world where there's so much food and so much variety, we learn to just expect it. We didn't realize that at one time food was scarce or food was limited. Or even this one, which is a little bit of a reverse. Smoking is seen very differently today than it used to be. What about TV and internet and smartphones? We grow up in a world where those things just are. And finally, here's another one. My grandma likes to tell this story. 
But in her generation, many young girls wouldn't dare kick a soccer ball because sports was not for females. And is that even in the slightest consideration today? It's, it's almost laughable that that could be a thought, but that was real in her generation. And yet it's, it's not even a possibility in our own minds because society has changed the way that we think. Now, I don't say any of these things to point out what is right and wrong, but to demonstrate how massively things have changed. So easily we can change with the flow of society, sometimes for good. Sometimes it might be for bad though. And we have to always consider how we're being affected by the world. And are these changes aligned with Bible teaching or do they go against Bible teaching? You see, lots of these things just are for us. We don't see any other options. And so it, it shapes our worldview. And we can get sucked into the vacuum of humanistic thought without even realizing. It. And all of a sudden, our views don't align with the Bible views. And yet we're Bible believers. So what do we do? Well, maybe we have to change the Bible. We have to figure out and reinterpret it. Surely the Bible must say something different than what it appears to. Because the Bible doesn't align with our worldview because, well, there is no other option. And we say this with seriousness, brothers and sisters, because our community is under attack from the onslaught of the world on all sorts of issues, but it's also under attack from within our community. Brethren have adopted the Western societal view that women should have the same roles of men, and they undermine the teaching of God, and it is no doubt heavily influenced by the flow of society. And so scriptures are twisted to fix their perspective. And, and what we want to do for you in the next few minutes is just to give you a few ways in which brethren in our community will argue to twist the scriptures. Now, as we leave here, we want to rejoice in the roles that God has given us, but we also want to be aware of how to defend the truth. And we need to be aware of what to watch out for. So this is what happens when all of a sudden our view, our worldview doesn't align with the Bible and we, we need the Bible to say something differently to support our worldview. So what we do is we make a big deal out of something very small and we make a small deal out of something very big. This is what happens. So I'll give you an example. A big deal is made about Lemuel's mother in Proverbs 31. And yet the fact that, well, the priests and the writers of scripture and Jesus and the disciples were male, well, that's ignored. And yet that would probably be a bigger deal. Well, what about this one? Missing the main point in a context. 
Galatians 3 is used. There is neither male nor female, bond or free. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Does that say anything about roles? The point of Galatians chapter 3 is to say it doesn't matter whether you're male or female. You have equal opportunity to be saved by your faith. In contrast to the law, which does not save. You'll find this, translation bias, picking and choosing translations for different passages. There's one particular translation, the NRSV, for example, that is known for taking out masculine-oriented language. It's in their preface. They do it on purpose. But there are other versions today, and some more common than you would think, that are also slanted towards gender-neutral roles. Number four, making things sound like they are relevant to roles when they are actually not. We won't give an example for this one for time's sake. Here's another one, conveniently avoiding a key verse or phrase. We think about Exodus 15 verse 20. This is used. Miriam, she's a prophetess. Do you know what's avoided in that verse? That women followed Miriam? That would be important in a gender role discussion. What about this one? Lacking verses with principles. Oftentimes, our key verses and our understanding is torn down, but nothing is built up in its place. This one, misapplying and using culture to twist verse meanings. That's only applicable to the culture back in the day. It's different now. And maybe the biggest one, and the one that we can fall into a trap with, is emotional arguments. It's said that current gender roles in Christadelphia should be looked down upon. Words are used like pernicious and damaging. Women are disenfranchised. You know, the world does look down upon Christadelphians for their roles. And it makes it easier for us too as well, because then we just join the other 8 billion people that think like that. But this says nothing about the truth of roles. God tells us what roles are. We don't want to fall prey to appealing to the emotions instead of the intellect. You know, turn with me to uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I just want to conclude with two Bible passages. 1 Corinthians 14 was briefly mentioned. And in verse 34, it says, let your women keep silence in the ecclesias. It's not permitted unto them to speak. They are commanded to be under obedience, as saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for a woman to speak in the ecclesia. We've gone through the the principles and, and the specific rules and why they are there already. But look at verse 37. If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. Paul did not pull these out of thin air. And Paul was not saying them because of culture. He was saying them because they are the commandments of the Lord. And the next verse, brothers and sisters, just tells us how important it is to get it right. 
Because it says, if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. This is not saying that if somebody is unaware of the principles, just let them be unaware. That wouldn't make any sense at all. The, the word ignorant can actually be translated unknown. So, for example, Paul says in Galatians 1.22, I was unknown by face unto the ecclesias of Judea. And, and so what it's actually saying here in verse 38, if any man is, if he doesn't know these principles, then he is not known. Many versions support this. For example, the NASB, the NET, the ESV, Rotherham's, Young literal, Young's Literal all say, if he does not recognize this, he will not be recognized. Think about those implications. Standing before the judgment seat of Christ, the commandments of the Lord. If we don't understand these principles... If we don't recognize them, then we ourselves will not be recognized. Think about those implications in the ecclesia. We want to be recognized by our brothers and sisters. We want Christ to confess who we are at the judgment. Brothers and sisters, I think we can say with absolute certainty that the principles of roles are scriptural. And our appeal to you then is to study them. The principles of roles are practical. So our appeal to you is to live them. It's helpful in ecclesias, in marriages, in families. They can be run effectively. The principles of roles are beautiful. So our appeal to you is to embrace them. There's a divine balance and harmony with the roles that God has given us. And we've just seen the principles of roles are important. So our appeal to you is to defend them. And I think one of the, the easiest things that can be done, which is very helpful, is that brethren must speak confidently and competently about a woman's role. If you can't, how can we expect a woman to feel confident and competent in her role? And conversely, a sister who doesn't fulfill her role confidently and competently, how are brethren supposed to speak confidently and competently? We've looked at roles this afternoon, brothers and sisters, and our appeal to you is to study, to live, to embrace, and to defend them. But it's not easy, is it? Especially with the trend of the world. But Christ never said it was going to be easy. One final passage in Matthew chapter 10. You can turn there with me now. Christ sends his disciples out. And he says, you're going to be sheep in the midst of wolves. Not exactly encouraging. And then he says in Matthew 10 in verse 22. Ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. You know, we are completely ignored by the world. Few, if any, come to our lectures. And we are passively hated. People aren't dragging us out of our homes or vandalizing our halls. 
but they hate our ideals. They speak against our traditions and they educate against our values, God's values, God's traditions. And Christ says, you'll be saved if you endure. He doesn't say you'll be saved if you're simply baptized or if if you're good at preaching. He says you'll be saved if you endure. And that is what we need to do. We need to hold on to the end. Because those that might hate us, brothers and sisters, can't do anything to us eternally. Christ says in verse 28, fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. People can do whatever they want to us in this life, but they can't kill us eternally. They can't take our life away forever. And so instead, Jesus says, fear him, fear God, which is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. God can make it an eternal and absolute judgment and give us life forevermore or give us death forevermore. That's who we need to fear. So we need to understand and appreciate the principles of God and not change them. God doesn't want us to fear as in be terrified either, because he cares for us and loves us. Verse 31 says, fear ye not, therefore, ye are more of more value than many sparrows. Whosoever, therefore, shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father, which is in heaven. And if we confess all of the truth and all of the aspects, including the principles of roles, and we are unashamed of it, and we study them and live them and embrace them and defend them, then then Christ will confess and acknowledge who we are, and that we are aligned with the truth. And that we, brothers and sisters, are fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters. And Christ will tell his father all of these things when we stand before the judgment. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org if you enjoyed the episode then please share it with others until next time may god bless you in your studies and your walk towards god's kingdom amen